Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we celebrate National Science Week by hearing stories about Australian science. Now, microbiology is fascinating, and all small forms of life sometimes have to go to extreme measures to find a food source, whether it be poison gas, or maybe chomping down on some gold nuggets. We also find out how they manage to hunt for food in our oceans. All this week and more, fungi, bacteria, and how they can thrive in some strange places. This week, it's National Science Week here in Australia. And in honour of that, we're going to look at a few stories of scientific research out of Australia that are published in worldwide global journals like Nature, Nature Communications, ISME, and so on. And we're going to focus on these particular areas of great outstanding contributions that Australian scientists based here at Australian universities are making to the global research community. Now, the first tale that we're going to tell is of bacteria. And we're going to look at bacteria in a variety of different places, struggling to survive, to live off the land, and to thrive in really odd and strange situations. And a lot of this research pieces together just how unlikely it is for some bacteria to survive and thrive in some of the strangest locations known to man, whether that be in the middle of a stranded, starving environment that was really toxic to humans, or floating in our oceans, our atmospheres, even in geothermal wells. So this week we're going to look at a variety of different stories that are about bacteria surviving for our Australian researchers. Our first tale of unlikely bacterial survival comes care of Monash University School of Biological Scientists, including the lead team led by Assistant Professor Chris Greening, and a number of other research including PhD student Paul Cordero and PhD candidate Katie Bailey. Now they've recently published in the ISME Journal a study which outlines how some bacteria are managing to survive in what would otherwise be a pretty much instant silent death sentence. Now you'll know carbon dioxide, CO2, carbon with two oxygen atoms. This molecule is pretty common and well understood. And you've probably also heard of carbon monoxide, carbon with a single oxygen atom. And this molecule is very known for its potential ability to kill people silently and in their sleep. Because carbon monoxide is quite deadly for us humans to ingest or partake of, especially in high concentrations and quantities spat out by, let's say, something like a malfunctioning heater, can lead to very sad and tragic deaths people in their own homes without realizing it. So carbon monoxide can lead to large numbers of illness and is in high concentrations pretty devastating and silently kills people in minutes. Now that gas is deadly for us but in the case of bacteria, in particular the mysobacteria group, they've actually thrive on this deadly gas. Well maybe not thrive but they use it to survive and this mysobacteria group is home to some of the most deadly diseases that you can imagine. Things like leprosy and tuberculosis, TB, even certain types of ulcers. Now, that's particularly amazing to think about. This deadly gas is a food source for these deadly diseases. And we've long known that these mysobacteria are able to survive off carbon monoxide, or at least interact with it in some positive way. But no one's really understood how. And that's what this research team from Monash University really dived into. Now see, the thing is, if you're an infectious disease, when you invade a host organism, chances are they'll respond by basically sending out lots of different parts of the immune system to hunt you down and kill you. 
and there's inflammation and infection and so on. It's not particularly the greatest of environments. So when you're in that state and you're fighting off a battle against a host's immune system, you try and take any source of energy that you can get. And if you're not starved to death, well, and when you are starving, anything that you can scavenge will actually be potentially useful. So the problem is typically these mycobacteria, when they're in a host, are actually starved of their preferred energy source. And they sort of get by by scavenging anything they can grab. And they do this by using an enzyme called carbon monoxide dehydrogenase. That enables the mycobacteria to actually break down carbon monoxide. And from that, recover a little bit of energy from the component elements. That's pretty exciting to think about. Now, the interesting part of this study, though, is that mycobacterium actually doesn't get enough to really thrive or grow. So it doesn't get any bigger or badder, but it does get enough to just scrape by. And that's particularly interesting to understand because TB, for example, is able to keep persisting inside human lungs. And that seems pretty strange, but then you remember that human lungs actually produce small amounts of carbon monoxide. So the bacteria are actually feeding and leeching off those parts of your immune system's response to stay dormant. And that's particularly interesting because dormancy allows mycobacterium tuberculosis, for example, to stay alive inside a patient for years. A dormant infection usually has no symptoms, but can blow up into full-blown TB once someone's immune system becomes compromised. And discovering the fact that these mycobacterium are actually using certain enzyme to break down carbon monoxide to just keep themselves ticking over while in sleep mode. It's particularly exciting to understand how tuberculosis can be such a persistent disease. So when you're living off the land in a hostile environment, mycobacterium turns to turning carbon monoxide, an otherwise poisonous gas, into just enough power to keep on keeping on, hiding and biding its time until it's ready to grow. But this research team has also been collaborating with researchers across the pond from New Zealand. This trans-Tasman collaboration was looking at a similar application because there's different types of bacteria group as well. Bacteria groups like the chloroflexi, you can actually be found living and dwelling in geothermal soils and volcanic vents like found in Yellowstone National Park, or maybe like the Tipuau geothermal area in New Zealand. Now, these areas have pretty high concentrations of hydrogen as well as again, carbon monoxide. And using a similar process, these different bacteria groups are actually able to use and scavenge using an enzyme to break down these gases into a food source. Now, these are not surviving and hiding out in your lungs, but these microbes are basically doing the same process to hide out and thrive in a geothermal well. This approach is pretty universal, it seems, for these bacteria groups to survive by basically finding any food source it can. Now, this study actually is only the third time a bacterial group has been found actually consuming atmospheric hydrogen to actually get them out of a starvation period. And the first group was the first group to find actually to use carbon monoxide for survival. Like the other paper we mentioned earlier, this was also published earlier this year in ISME. And it goes to show that when there's a potentially dangerous situation for bacteria, these microbes are going to turn to anything that they can get their hands on. And that might be even hydrogen in a geothermal well, carbon monoxide from a poisonous geothermal vent, or maybe even hiding out in your lungs. So microbes will really try and find any way. And this is some great work out of the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University with two different papers published in ISME.
Now Australia is a mining country. We dig up all kinds of minerals from our ground, whether it be iron ore, uranium, or even gold. But this part of our continent that we dig up and ship offshore most of the time also hides some pretty interesting mysteries that Australia's National Science Agency, the CSIRO, have been digging into, and recently published in the journal Nature Communications. All of this was led by the lead author on this particular paper, Dr. Singh Bohu. Now, this was looking at a particular strange interaction, one that doesn't make much sense, if you think about it. But that is using fungi to help find gold. Now, this sounds like a crackpot theory, but it actually is pretty exciting to learn about. What these researchers have actually discovered is a way that a certain type of fungi are actually oxidizing, chewing up tiny particles of gold, and then they actually precipitate it out on their strands. This is like a cycling process, chewing up and spitting out all the gold. And this is really, really strange for a number of reasons. First on, this kind of like degradation recycling of organic material is pretty much a well-known process, and fungi do that all the time. They chew up and spit out into requisite tiny components, leaves and barks. And we've seen it in other metals like aluminium, iron, manganese, and calcium. But gold, gold is a strange case. And that's because gold is so chemically inactive that normally we don't ever see it actually interacting with anything. It's one of the reasons we use gold in high-powered electronics. It doesn't really react with stuff around it. But in this case, this fungi is pretty much pretty keen on chomping down, chewing up tiny little bits of gold. And not just doing it as an emergency desperation food source. No, they actually are thriving when they chew up and chomp down this gold. The gold-coated fungi are actually found to grow larger and spread faster than those that didn't interact with gold at all. Now, how do they all discover this? Well, actually, what Syro is trying to do is trying to find ways to have a more planet-flendry mining industry. And some of that includes low-impact mining technologies. They're looking at different ways to explore for where there may be mineral deposits, such as studying gum leaves and termite mounds. They've, they've seen ways to identify whether or not you can see trace gold deposits left over in the dirt that the termites dig up, or maybe drawn up through the root systems and coating the leaves of gum trees. And they can be linked potentially to larger deposits of gold underneath. And it's the same problem that this fungi are using as well. They're actually this fungi in particular, Fusarium oxporum, are actually drawing up these little tiny amounts of gold and using it to help them break down other sorts of carbon food. Now, Fusarium oxporum is actually found in soils just across the world. It's not uniquely Australian. And it produces a pink mycelium or flower. But it's not something that you should go out there right now foraging for. Because, well, even if you manage to find one of these and their particular mycelium flowers, you won't actually see enough gold because the trace particles of gold can only be seen under a microscope. But it does show that the gold is there in the soil and underneath. And this is a pretty interesting example of the way in which microbiology can be applied to a variety of different industries. In this case, helping to find ways to make mining less high impact. And it's not the only type of organism that can live on and thrive off gold. Researchers from SARA all the way back in 2006 published again in Nature that bacteria could actually live and thrive on gold nuggets, which is a pretty amazing thing to think about. Researchers all the way back in 2006, including Dr. Frank Reith from the CRC for Land, Environments and Mineral Explorations, 
looked at some examples of bubbles in gold mines actually containing bacteria inside it, where bacteria are actually growing on the surface of gold nuggets, which is a pretty interesting thing to think about. So gold, which is one of Australia's largest exports, is actually often thriving with all kinds of life. So those rocks in the ground are actually home to some pretty strange and hardy creatures. And this is some great work out of the CSIRO, including collaboration with the University of Western Australia, Murdoch University and Curtin University, all based on Western Australia. Now, when you're hungry, you tend to gravitate towards somewhere where you can get something to eat. This is a pretty universal feature. Now, that might just be a cafe, a restaurant, a supermarket, or even, quite simply, your fridge. Or maybe your dog, at a certain hour, knowing that it's dinner time, gravitates towards you. Or maybe underneath the chair of the small child, because they'll know that they'll get fed there. Now, this is an example of life gravitating towards a food source. There's a strange system going on when you think about really, really small forms of life. And you need to think about bacteria. Now, bacteria are thriving as an important part of the food web in our oceans. Now, you probably have heard of plankton, which is what, you know, the small microbes and particles that whales and other krill feeders feed on, all these tiny, tiny little creatures. But actually, it's a lot more complicated than that because plankton is actually in a variety of levels, all the way down to pycoplankton which is a large component of, is bacteria. Um, like, bacteria chew on and eat dissolved organic carbon and other nutrients in the ocean. They, in turn, get eaten by nanoplankton, microplankton, mesoplankton, and higher levels in the food web. So bacteria plays an important part of the process of understanding just how our food chain in our oceans builds up. And sometimes a food source can suddenly appear out of nowhere. For example, when a microalgae cell breaks apart, dumps all of its nutrient-rich contents into the water. In such an event, you end up with a super high concentration of nutrients in that area, and further away are lower and lower concentrations. Scientists actually refer to this as a concentration gradient. Another way to think about it is you can smell some freshly baked goods from far away. You can smell it faintly, but as you get closer and closer, that smell becomes overpowering. So researchers from the University of California, Santa Cruz, ETH in Zurich, University of Tsukaba and Princeton University have been working with researchers from Melbourne University here in Australia, including Dr. Brumley. They published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences journal, PNAS. And they've been looking at, in particular, how these bacteria in our oceans manage to hunt for food. Now, we spoke about before you being led by your nose towards some delicious smelling baked goods. But how does a piece of tiny bacteria in the ocean manage to find this rich nutrient source from our aforementioned broken cell of microalgae? Now, how do they detect this concentration gradient? Some particular bacteria have evolved the ability to swim using the small hair-like flagella. And if they have that, they can also use that flagella to propel them used towards where they think food might be. Other bacteria perform a process called chemotaxis, which enables them to detect a small whiff of a chemical cue, and then inch towards the source of that compound. 
Now, chemotaxis is a pretty well understood process. And in fact, bacteria in your mouth are doing that to sort of be drawn towards sources of plaque, for example. And bacteria like E. coli is a pretty well studied bacteria that actually exhibits chemotaxis. But that's great to understand E. coli in a lab or in your mouth or in some biological source, but in the ocean, that's really strange because the ocean is incredibly complicated, but it's also huge at dissolving and dispersing any of these chemical cues. If there was a gradient there, it would be incredibly weak, almost flat, so it'd be nearly diff impossible to detect for any detection system. So the question really is, how far do these bacteria need to be from a potential food source and how far can they travel to get there once they've discovered us? Characterizing and analyzing the response of bacteria in the ocean is pretty literally understood. And that's what these researchers have been working together to try and understand. So they looked at a particularly abundant marine bacterium by the name of Vibrio ordali. Now, what they did with this ordali is actually paired it with an amino acid and a potent chemical attractant called glutamate. Now, at the beginning, these bacteria are basically stuck in a sea of glutamate. But the glutamate has actually got another molecule attached to it. This makes it a caged form of glutamate, which prevents it from actually responding or giving off any sort of chemical trace. Then the researchers dump a piece of two of bacteria into this sea of glutamate, like putting somebody blindfolded with all the lights off into a supermarket. That person is surrounded by food, but they don't know it just yet. Now, the researchers then used a microscopic targeted pulse of light, and they basically shone it on a single spot of the glutamate, which released that other mo molecule and made that glutamate visible to the bacteria. And it's as if someone took off the blindfold of the person and turned on the light, but only on one light on one particular shelf on one end of the supermarket. So they then watched with a camera to see how quickly this bacteria, the Vibrio, could actually make their way with their tiny little flagella towards their food source, the glutamate. And basically, they do get there. It takes them some time, but they manage to swim all the way around and find that food source. A bit like playing Marco Polo in the pool. They swim along, and if they detect the gradient is positive and they're getting slightly more nutrients than they were before, they'll keep going. But on the other hand, if they think they're getting worse, they're seeing a lower concentration of the chemicals they're interested in, they'll just pick a random direction and then go swimming off there. And this sort of stumbling process is slightly inefficient, and it's mostly because it's a bacteria. It doesn't really have a well long-established memory. But they very quickly get into a strong gradient. When the gradient's weak, though, they can head off on random tangents very frequently. Despite all of that, this bacteria is actually pretty good at finding its nutrient source, even in trace amounts and low concentrations. It shows that inside these bacteria, they actually have a pretty good processing system and algorithm for hunting through. Now, it's long been known that these type of marine bacteria are pretty good swimmers. They swim about 50 to 100 body lengths per second. Well, if you compare that to a human being, that's much faster than a sprinter. But they need to know where they're going to get there efficiently. And the algorithm that these bacteria are using to actually find their way can be mathematically modeled. And they're actually pretty good detection systems. So understanding how these bacteria are thriving in our oceans, hunting for the faintest traces of food source, is really helping us understand the entire of the lower part of our food web. Yes, we understand how fish, 
shellfish, whales, and other creatures in our food ecosystem in our oceans work together. But understanding how the lowest levels of those change actually hunt for food is particularly interesting. So there's some great work published in the journal The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, including research from the University of Melbourne, like Dr. Brumley. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From living on a gold nugget to swimming blindly through the oceans hunting for food, even finding ways to turn poisonous gas into food, fungi and bacteria are great at finding new ways to survive. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.